Welcome to Talatera, a podcast about freelance educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. Who are these educators? What do they do? Join me and let's find out together. This is your host, Tanya Marion. Hi, it's Tanya. This week, we take a look at engaging Latinx youth. In 2018, I had the opportunity to take a five-week workshop about developing cultural competence. The instructor was Claudia Diaz Carrasco, 4-H Youth Development Advisor for the University of California Extension and a community researcher whose specialty is intercultural competence. Since this workshop, I've had the opportunity to feature Claudia on this podcast and the opportunity to learn even more from her in a professional development workshop she led for Talatera. The workshop was about engaging diverse audiences and forming community partnerships. This week, we revisit the conversation Claudia and I had in 2019. After the episode, I will tell you about a new resource for practitioners that is based on Claudia's research. Let's join the conversation. Thank you, Claudia, for making time for our conversation today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Tanya. As you know, I'm investigating the contributions that freelance educators in natural resource fields and environmental education make to their communities. And I assert that independent educators are uniquely positioned to create change in their communities and that their ability to move through communities and engage with people where they are means that they have the potential to converse with an audience that is more diverse than one might find at a museum, a botanical garden, or a historical site. And so what I'd like to talk to with you today about is how independent educators can learn to engage with diverse audiences and how they can work on developing intercultural competence you know, on their own. I'd also like to talk about your program, your 4-H leadership program that you run for the University of California. Can you tell us about that program? Yes, so 4-H is a program that has been in the U.S. communities for over 100 years. It was funded through the U.S. Department of Agriculture. and It's um, delivered like nationwide in different counties uh, through our land-grant university systems. So in California, the University of California Agriculture and Natural Resources is the one in charge of delivering this program in our communities. And so the 4-H uh, mission is to... Uh, really engage youth in all the areas, providing them life skills, um, you know, hands-on learning experiences for them to become leaders of their communities. Uh, at the same time as we're trying to advance the field of youth development. And we, we do this leadership training of life skill training uh, through three different areas, which are our science, technology, engineering, and math programs, our healthy living programs, and our citizenship programs, which are the ones that um, the USDA mandates for us to do. 
And so here in Riverside and San Bernardino, I have been working uh, with the Forge program for the last four years. And uh, one of the first uh, missions that that I that I took over was uh, really the challenge of like expanding and diversifying our program. Traditionally, Forge have served like rural audiences. And, you know, Riverside and San Bernardino are such like uh, diverse in not only like rural, suburban and urban areas, but also like of the different places uh, where the people uh, that live here come from. Um, and so for me, it has been like, you know, a perfect opportunity to merge my passion to creating future leaders at the same time that I'm able to do research on cultural competence and uh, extending the knowledge from my research to um, people in our communities that are working with youth, whether it's in a library stuff, whether it's like in the after school setting, whether it's like in summer camps or day camps. And that's how the series that you were part of last year came from, you know, really in an attempt from the University of California uh, to empower, uh, you know, other educators to our research. And and so, you know, it's my pleasure to be here. And I, you know, as, as you were mentioning, uh, and please, um, if you need me to clarify on, it, on anything, just go ahead and, and ask me about it. But it's, I really think that freelance educators play like a critical role uh, and as you were mentioning, is like reaching to all these people that formal education settings are not currently reaching. Um, you know, like I'm really fortunate to be hired and for the university, the UCANR, um, just to really looking for expertise on the areas that we were lacking, like diversity and also for each programs in urban areas. But really, there is a lot of organizations that are not able to hire an expert on those settings, <laughs> you know, and, and I do feel that oftentimes our educators in the after school settings or free educators, like is your case, and I assume the audience that listen to this podcast, um, you know, people want to empower themselves, they want to have new knowledge, but then it's like, where do I start, especially with topics like cultural competence, uh, that speak too much to our inner self. Uh, in my experience, a lot of educators, uh, we end having, you know, like our in the classroom or like, you know, in our teaching mode when we want to be like good role models for our students and we want to transfer like the best of our knowledge and ability to them. Uh, but when it comes to culture, uh, is like, you know, what do I trust me? And what are the eyes that I see the world and how uh, sometimes um, intentionally or not intentionally the way that we see the world that impacts the way that we educate. And so really cultural competence, you know, there is like uh, different models and different outdoors that uh, talk about building this competency in our educators. But I think the one thing that most of the models agree upon is in having this self-awareness. And so, you know, most of my work is how can we help our educators to start having that self-awareness of who they are and how they show up into the classroom, into the camp setting, you know, into the nature hike or whatever, uh, you know, the field trip leader, um, any any role that they are playing in sort of the youth, how they are bringing themselves, but also how their lenses, um, so youth experience in nature. I want to have a conversation about how independent educators can learn to engage with diverse audiences. Because the, the independent educators work so much in informal learning environments, you know, outside of school, how can educators do this on their own? What would be a, the smart way for them to even start this on their own? Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of that's a loaded question. So I first uh, do want to just for the audience clarify a little bit, you know, like me being like a, an employee from the 
University of California as a natural resources, you know, like I do work in the realms of higher education, you know, and part of my job is doing these research publications or whatever. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, I really am a community-based researcher. So like I do have a staff and volunteers that donate their time uh, for us to be able to have after-school programs in our local school districts to host, like, again, day camps during the summer or summer camps, overnight experiences. And so, like, for me, it's kind of really interested to live, like, in the merging of these two areas, you know, whether, like, some people have access to higher education and go to traditional institutions, but they're also having these community-based organizations tied to provide services to the youth that is needed. I mean, and definitely in California, we have like a wide variety of diversity, not only again for like the places where people live, come from, but also like a diversity of environment, um, you know, like a diversity of socioeconomic status. Uh, and so I think uh, it's critical for every freelance educator to recognize and to get to know that the community they are living or the community they are willing to work. And for me, that will be the first thing. As you know, a lot of authors recognize, especially when we are trying to, um, to serve diverse communities, uh, it's really we cannot do it alone. And I think uh, that's often the uh, probably the oversight that a lot of big, big institutions like the University of California or 4H or any of our local programs, like you know, uh, Boys and Girls Scouts, uh, our local. Uh, community clubs is like we all try to do the things in our own and really what research shows us is that there is a strength on collaboration. Uh, what I find particularly important when you talk to me about this project is that big organizations or they like the organizations that came to mind when it comes to after school or out of school times programs um, you know, there is like some anchored organizations, big organizations, branded organizations that, yeah, they may have the kids with them, but honestly, they don't have the expertise, uh, like when it comes to environmental education, to NITRE highs, to really providing this hands of experience for the youth. Oftentimes, these organizations employ college students that are looking for like a part-time job. Um, they do like a wonderful work engaging in the students, you know, sharing experiences of being the face-to-face. -face. They have like the high energy uh, just to be in the classroom. Uh, but oftentimes these people didn't have like kind of the experience for themselves to to develop programs. And I think that for me, that why freelancers can play a critical role. When generally it's like people that have followed their passion, that they have like a high um, knowledge of expertise in a specific topic. And I think that when they're able to align their expertise with any needs um, that these after school programs may have, uh, it's a strength for both of them. For, for you guys to be able to train other after school staff or um, you know, to design like a tailored program for these um, institutions, uh, but also to deepen in the language of the schools. You know, like I always use this example when I start working and um, partnering with, with educators for me to be able to expand the science contents of 4-H is like, you know, if I take someone outside uh, to see a tree in the school setting for the kids, I can only talk about the main parts of a tree, you know, this is the bark, this is the leaves, but someone that has really um, spent years of their life like doing youth programs or environmental education programs can have like a way more engaging way to do it. Um, and so I think, uh, again, just 
sometimes uh, the organizations may have the resources, but they don't have the expertise. And I think that uh, freelancers often have like highest levels of expertise, but they don't necessarily have the resources to impact uh, the life of many good. And I think for me, that's the key. And that's kind of like uh, when we can align the strategies of saying educators, you know, what you can offer and how can we make it work so your expertise really goes longer. In terms of impact, I think like uh, at the end of the day, both freelancers and uh, programs that are serving youth and families in our communities, they want to have impact and they want more people to experience these programs or most people to acquire this knowledge. And I think that intersection is kind of something that often uh, we don't explore uh, closely. So one thing that the educators could do is to partner with local local organizations. But how should these independent educators approach potential partners? How could they establish a rapport and build trust and understanding with the community partners? I think uh, something that is critical, uh, especially, um, you know, in our communities is uh, really being able to identify what community needs. You know, often like universities or partners like are driven by needs assessments, but I really, the more the freelancer is immersed in their community and can demonstrate like a need uh, of, you know, which places are not reaching in. Again, we uh, we have like kind of sometimes organizations like this blind, you know, this blindness on us that we are so immersed in our research or like the objectives or like the grants that we are receiving that we often like overlook what is really the community needs. Uh, again, like uh, I'm being part of the Langland University, the university have like this mission to extend the research, but private universities doesn't have that mission. You know, other programs, they are just trying to go through the day to day. Um, but I think, uh, I mean, something that I always find value when I partner um, with independent educators is when they are, when I see the need in the communities and organization and the people that I want to partner with or the freelancers have already recognized that same need, oftentimes these freelancers have the the time to already develop a program and to have a proposal. And so kind of uh, oftentimes they come to me with solutions and say like, hey, you know, like I have, you know, uh, it's the workshop that, uh, that you were part of was specifically that, like, uh, you know, this community organization saying, you know, I recognize that there is a staff need to develop the cultural competence. And I know that I don't have the expertise to do that training. But I'm looking into you as a higher education institute to provide that for us. And for me, it was doing the same thing. Like, you know, I want to have um, people to work with the youth in our communities that have acquired this competence. And so, like, I'm willing uh, to provide some of my time to create that space of professional development. Uh, but it's, I think we're not the easiest way to align um, you know, a strategy because all partnerships, you know, the partnership development process, unfortunately, it takes time. Um, but I really think that that time spent uh, pays back, whether you're trying to develop partnerships first with the community so you get to know them. You know, I mean, especially being a freelance educator, sometimes it's like, well, you know, I'm spending all this time with the community and nobody's really like retributing me for that. Uh, but once you develop that expertise, I, I really think that it's something that pays back. At the same time, that if you're trying to develop partnerships with a, with an institution, just getting to know whether their mission goals, what are their yearly objectives, and really speaking to those, to the leadership, for me, it's always like the best practice to align the strategies. And how should uh, independent educators think about 
equity in informal learning environments? Because it's more than just bringing a tried and true activity to a new audience. And what considerations should be made before, before this? Yeah. Well, there is, um, you know, five principles that um, we, so a group of, um, so basically there was like a task force in, in the division that I worked for like a couple of years ago um, to be able to review the literature and say like kind of what programs need to be doing in order uh, for them to, to be equitable and to really serve, um, to reach out to people. Um, so, you know, equity, it's, uh, first of all, I think I guess my, my first, and this is just coming to the top of my mind, is having a good understanding of what, what equity means. And I think that's a concept that is often misunderstood in literature. Um, I have, uh, I provide this picture for the people that is listening. Uh, and I love this image for one of our state directors. There is like kind of three guys that they are different heights trying to look across a football field. Um, you know, and so depending on the height of these kids, they're going to need a different size of box behind their feet to be able to just overlook through the fence so they can see the football game. And so, I mean, for me, that's one of the best definitions of equity that I can find because it that doesn't mean that everything gets the same. It just means that everybody gets the right box for them to get to the place that they need to be. And so when it comes to independent educators, um, you know, again, I guess the first thing is building their own um, equity perspective. Oftentimes, the programs that they are called to work for, they don't have this equity perspective. And so when I look, uh, when I'm looking into that equity lens, for example, um, when I'm looking into partnerships for the FH program, there is like four pieces that emerge from the literature that I always use to determine like, hey, you know, I do want to go and partner to this program or I don't want to. So one of those underpinnings is um, having an understanding, um, you know, a comprehensive understanding of youth development. And for me, what that means is that extensive understanding of positive youth development means that is you only don't have the youth in the center, but they recognize that the youth is part of a family and there is as well part of a community. So like, for example, you have a student that show up into my classroom and they may have experienced hunger at home. I need to understand that I'm not going to address the youth and I'm just going to help him do the homework, but I might also need to provide a snack because what he's experiencing at home. You know, I mean, I'm not going to like shame this student. So that's for me, it's like an extended understanding of youth development. So you and becoming um, not only like a program provider, but really uh, to be having minds that the organizations that you are working are having this wraparound approach. Uh, and again, after school programs, for example, in the school districts are really good doing that. If you are coming in as an educator, they already take care of all those pieces. They already give them a healthy snack. They already provide transportation for the youth to be there. But that's kind of one of the pieces. Is like if the organization that is calling me to do this work as independent educator has this extended understanding of what the youth needs. Um, you know, so that's one of the things that they that we follow. The other principle that we follow is content with psychological and social effects of discrimination. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, a lot of the kids in our schools, they do face these social effects of discrimination. And so when we are creating a program or where you are deciding a program as an independent educator, it's just like... Um, 
you know, uh, making sure that you are taking in account experiences that the youth in the community may have. Uh, you know, we in San Bernardino, we work with a lot of English as a second language learners. Um, there is like, there's probably going to be some words in the programming that these kids are not going to be able to catch up at the first time or may not be able to pronounce. And so that kind of educator be able to to look out for those examples when the kid is trying to participate and he's not having fun of that. Again, it's kind of, I cannot pinpoint uh, you a specific examples because the variety of the programs that independent educators can work like it's infinite, but really the realm or the guiding principle is like, how can I contend the psychological and social effects that kids are experiencing in this uh, program? And there's the, the, the example that I always use uh, when we are working with educators is, you know, for example, don't assume that every kid has seen the ocean. You know, that's that's not the truth of our communities in Southern California. You know, some kids have my gone, some others have not gone. And so just kind of being mindful of what what are you going to bring into the classroom, which talk is going to see, and, and how can you make sure that the kids, uh, you know, the examples are relatable to the kids, not only to your own life experience. And that's, for me, that's the critical of self-awareness, like recognizing that what you have gone through your life might not be the reality of the kids that you are teaching. And so in the teaching, how are you contending with the social effects that they may have for discrimination? Other thing that we try always to focus is in the support of positive ethnic identity development. And again, I think like, uh, especially when it comes to teenage uh, age programs, uh, you know, kids start developing their identity and they do that through the affiliation of different groups. They do that, um, you know, having the sense of belonging to their, the school or to a sport or for anything that is in their life. But the other thing that is really important for organizations to keep in mind is like the ethnic identity and how we, do we foster this ethnic identity in our programs. In 4-H, um, you know, most of my work focuses on that. Uh, you know, how can we bring up like cultural celebrations to the day-to-day -day programming? Um, you know, um, for example, Mother's Day. Mother's Day in Mexico celebrated always like May 10th versus, uh, you know, different dates in the States. And so, again, like how can I recognize the different um, places of the different cultural traditions that the kids may have? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm Mexican, so most of the times I use examples of Mexican culture, but how can we mix like day of the day to create like a ethnic identity for kids in my program? And how does that relate to the other content that I'm trying to say? Um, you know, sometimes we use the date of the dates to create poem and that's helping literacy the students. So, you know, we are bringing like a culture piece to a literacy to a literacy piece that needs to be covered at the school. Um, other thing that is really important, and it's probably that's the challenge for independent educators, and that's what I always um, ask them to do partnerships, is how programs respond to economic poverty. In order for a program to be equitable, they need to be able to respond to the economic poverty that their participants may or may not be experiencing. You know, and so this is the part when programs that are equitable do make sure that all the students have transportation to make it to the place where the meeting is, uh, that they make sure that they're providing snacks or food for the students that I may not have uh, experienced that. Uh, you know, programs are providing supplies for the students instead of expecting every student to come with their own ruler or scissors or things that for some communities might be like not big deal, but from other communities, they may, they may not participate in a program just because they didn't have the supplies that they were asked to bring at a school. And then the final point that it's uh, always like a challenge is how can you tailor 
uh, the specific experiences, resources, needs, and interests uh, to the local Latino youth. And so I remember one of my first attempts to do an environmental education program was here in Southern California doing a program for uh, in a school that I was like in Hemet. And we wanted to use a curriculum that I was like first um, um, closely developed like in a forest uh, land. So like, you know, a lot of the activities, like the trees in the forest are way different. You know, the trees in Samora in the forest are completely different to the nature that you can experience in Hemet or in the Coachella Valley. And so, you know, yes, we want to teach them about environmental education, but we want them to be relevant to the things that they, places that they live around. And so that's like a really simplistic example, but it truly happened. You know, once we have uh, choose the curriculum, we realize, well, this is a forest-based curriculum, and our kids are living closer to the desert than in the forest. Uh, but that is kind of so we do recognize that we need to tailor our efforts to the specific experiences uh, and resources that this community had. Uh, and you know, not even like a program for forage that has a hundred years of services can do it in our own. Like you know, I partnered with around like twenty to twenty-five organizations in our yearly basis to be able to ensure that our programs are tailoring the efforts, are responding to economic poverty, are being spaces for ethnic identity development, are contending um, social effects for discriminations, and they are incorporating this extended understanding of youth development, which includes the family and the community, and not only the youth. So for me, that's kind of like the the shifter that I use when I'm trying to develop partnerships, like recognizing what Forge cannot do, uh, and then looking in the community for organizations that I cover one of these five points. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. That's that are very good points. Thank you. And how is your project coming along? Well. You know, uh, so for each in Riverside and San Bernardino counties, so we have like four main program streams, if you may call it. We have our community club program, which is highly volunteer based. Uh, we also have our college and career readiness programs, um, which are based on local high schools and are helping uh, low income students um, get the resources that they need to get into college. Uh, we also have uh, where you know, leadership programs during the summer, uh, which we have like team-based, um, kind of, we have team, teams of teenagers leading camps for younger youth. And that's like a main component of our leadership experience of 4-H. And we have like all these um, school enrichment programs in for environmental education that we do in 4-H. So definitely, like, as I was telling you, it's not so these principles are not something that is like a cutty cutter and say, you know, the way that I respond to economic poverty in the community clubs are completely different to the way that we respond to economic poverty during the summer. And so I'll give you some examples for two of them. So our community clubs are mainly run by adult volunteers. Um, we have around a thousand youth involved uh, in this program every year in 4-H. And transportation and Meals are never an issue in our community club program. So the majority of the demographics in this program are like middle income youth. And so, you know, parents take turns to bring a snack to each meeting. So they may be a kid that, you know, their parents never show up to the meeting and therefore they are never asked to bring a snack. But if these kids come hungry, there is going to be a snack available for him. And also like there is um, such sense of different parents helping other parents that they give rights among themselves. So it doesn't have any cost to my organization to ensure that kids that are participating in this program have transportation. 
because the clubs are a mixture of low-income and middle-class youth that helps each other around. So, you know, uh, so in that program, most of my efforts are on creating ethnic identity development. And again, like if they are going to have a holiday party in December, make sure that it's not a Christmas party, you know, because we do have kids uh, that doesn't celebrate these religious holidays. You know, and yes, it's okay to to talk about holidays with the youth, but it's kind of like our job to make sure that we're talking about Hanukkah and Christmas, you know, and just like a holiday break, <laughs> uh, you know. And so, so that's kind of one of the examples of my programs. Differently to our college and career readiness programs, where we are based in local high schools and we work predominantly with low-income youth, in those meetings, like part of my job is actually fundraise to be able to provide food in these meetings. We have given kids like Uber cards because most of the kids they have parents that work, um, you know, different shifts, and so instead for us providing transportation, we just like make a student time agreement and we give them like an Uber card so they can make sure that they have transportation from the meetings and back. Um, these clubs uh, are meeting also sometimes during the school time. So that's where we can ensure that a school is providing lunch for them. Uh, so for me, it's really hard to talk about um, specific examples for programming because it becomes so unique to the community so like when you you know going back to your question about what would a freelancer educator should do or how can they better um, support you know efforts in the communities so one piece of it is like having you know a knowledge of the community and i think that's always going to ground you in doing like meaningful programs for whoever you want to serve the second time is having that self-awareness and knowing you know kind of where is your passion what is your expertise and then which type of population you're willing to work with and which population you are not willing to work to and so because that self-awareness is going to totally determine the type of partnerships that you're willing to create and so then the third of there uh, after you know you know your community you know what is your expertise and then you are looking for organizations that want to support you in this endeavor uh, is aligning, aligning that strategic thinking so for me like in all of the forge programs that's the majority of my work just looking into my community who has the resources that i don't have how can i foster this partnership um, I mean, we have seen increase, like overall, uh, really thanks to the efforts um, that we have doing the office and like really the amazing thing that we were able to build here. Um, we, When I received the 4-H program four years ago, we have around like 600 youth in Riverside County. And I'm just going to use Riverside County as an example. Uh, today, uh, we have created this different set of programs and we're serving around five types of youth annually. Uh, not only, yeah, so not only the numbers of the program have increased, but also the diversity. Uh, you know, just at the top of my mind, we used to have around like 10 to 15% of Latino youth. Now I'm have, we're having like a big issue because last year we reported we were serving like um, seven, 69% <laughs> of Latino youth. And, you know, our youth population is around 50%. So we were basically over serving Latino youth in the program. Uh, and so I, I'll, I'll see some increases as uh, the program has increased. We have like greater funding challenges. You know, it's not the same thing serving 600 youth than 5,000. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really moving forward to do like fundraising campaigns and some, you know, fee by service contracts uh, with people. 
But overall, what I really value is just be able to collect real data from the communities. You know, we did have this literature review and we have these five principles that emerge from the literature and say like, hey, you know, you need to to provide ethic identity development. You need to respond to economic poverty, but I didn't know how that is going to look into a community program. And so for these four years, informally and formally, we have been collecting data. And so now I know, um, you know, some examples uh, of how we can respond to economic poverty in different organizations. And it could be as simple, like for example, nobody learns in a hungry stomach. And so like, if you are gonna be called to be, to do like a day camp, for example, um, there is places in the community that offer like free lunches during the summer, like libraries. So if you are doing that as a um, independent educator and you wanna create something for the summer, it's like, well, you know, I'm not gonna go and do it by myself. I'm just gonna find a library that has like the free lunch program and I'm gonna have my program right after all the students receive free lunch. So it's like you as an independent educator, you know, you don't need to fundraise for the food, you don't need to coordinate about all the food safety practices, but you are aware that if you wanna have a equitable program, kids need to eat. And so, you know, it's probably just going to this side uh, and say like, hey, you know, I know you're giving free lunches here and the kids are not gonna have anything to do afterwards. And we do some um, educational program here. So like, it could be like as simple as that versus like saying like, you know, I'm just gonna do the summer programming and now I need like $10,000 to serve this many kids. You know, a lot of uh, the times when it comes to equity is like having access or having access to safe spaces. A lot, there is like a spaces in our community that unfortunately may not feel safe uh, for certain segments of our community. So it's like, well, I'm going to select a place where people, you know, like a library is generally uh, a place that all families are familiar with and are willing to do versus like a city hall that it will be threatening for some people. Uh, so again, like it's everything is based on how well you know your community, how well you know your expertise, recognizes when you need help. And what I always find, um, you know, cultural competence, I'm really happy when people say like, hey, you know, like I really don't know how to manage this segment of the population or like I'm really afraid of doing that. And I think just bringing those things uh those are starting those conversations and recognizing the areas that we as educators feel uncomfortable uh, really brings value to the table. You know, again, for me, uh, it's still like I'm getting to become comfortable working with the U.S. educational system. I didn't grow up in this country. So like in Mexico, we don't have a school districts like we have them here. You know, we don't have like a PTA meeting, like a formal, you know, we don't have a board of education. And so like sometimes when I'm going to school settings, I recognize that I need to go with someone that has been raised here in the U.S. and can translate these uh, organizational infrastructure pieces for me. Uh, so, you know, like, I don't know who is more important if the president of the board of education or the principal, or I don't know which roles they play. Uh, and so just kind of really being able, you know, to have this self-awareness and say like, which, where are we playing? Which arena I'm playing? And who do I need to talk to make a program happen? Is really that guides the day-to-day programming. Yeah. Yeah. That is fantastic work, Claudia. That's fantastic that your program has grown the way that it has in the four, in four years that you've been been working in it. That is just impressive. You've worked with huge populations of 
of youths and families. And, you know, I have this recurring conversation with other educators about people being afraid of nature. I was wondering, based on your experience, what have you noticed or observed that creates anxiety with people when it comes to nature or being outdoors? You know, in my experience, uh, and I, I went so the people in the audience know, uh, I work predominantly with low-income Latino youth. Uh, with this particular uh, segment of the population, uh, really one of the fears is, you know, not knowing. Like, you know, when I think about, um, you know, my kid just going and touching plants or like climbing a tree, like there's always a normal fear that a parent has, like, are they going to fall? Like, you know, are they going to touch something? I have an allergy. Uh, for me, it really, really is like one not knowing about what really means being with the nature. You know, I, I have like all types of, um, of questions from parents, like, you know, we do, we say that we're going to do a field trip and then like all of a sudden the parents say like, do they need to win a raincoat and raining boots? And do they need to like, almost they want to have like a whole, um, you know, like a lab coat or anything like for them to be able to go to a field trip. And it's like, no, we're just going to go like in a nature hike. All they need is comfortable shoes and sunscreen. <laughs> like, you know, so like, I think one of the, of the challenges is just, uh, being more specific of what it means uh, to take a kid to the nature. Uh, you know, there is, I once have a field trip taking some kids to the river and there's like, is my kid is going to drown in the river? You know, like parents, I mean, and it's human nature just to go to the catastrophic uh, scenario. So when we are inviting a new community to like experience the outdoors, um, just being clear, like, hey, you know, we're going to go to, um, whatever forest, like, you know, or we're going to go to this local park and we are going to do a walk, like, you know, or and we are going to do games. Just kind of really being specific, that's something that I have helpful with the parents. Um, also always providing safety guidelines. I think like for any activity that is not like the day-to-day uh, after school program or camp or whatever, if you hand up to the parents like you know a handout that has like five bullets and say like for your safety wear comfortable shoes and wear sunscreen and bring a hat and kind of these things they make parents aware that you are recognizing that they are safety um, procedures that needs to be followed and that you are aware of those and you're letting them be aware of those that generally helps reduce anxiety with the families that I work with uh, and then really the third piece, like sometimes anxiety is not related to nature, is like who is going to be leading my field trip. And there are some communities that have uh, no problem trusting uh, someone in a position as authority like a teacher. Some communities don't have and they just recognize a teacher as an authority. And so I think it's really a problem when we haven't built a relationship with uh, with our communities or with our parents, and then we all of a sudden send like, you know, a piece of paper letting the parents sign off here because your kid is gonna go here and where. Often the question that I guess for parents is like, who is gonna be the leader? What expertise do they have? What education do they have? Or, you know, there is, um, depending on the cultural background, uh, generally, or what I have found in the research is that, uh, you know, middle-class white communities are okay just knowing like, oh, he's a third grade teacher and has this position of authority. And that seems to be calming for them. Like a Latino family is going to want to know the name and the last name and who is the grandma of whoever is going to be the field trip leader, trip leader, you know? So 
uh, it's just like a relationship-based community. And so they need to know when they are going to sign the paper, they need to have in their minds the face of who is going to be and how do these people got here. You know, definitely if you're like an educator, like never say like hello and good night, or I like, uh, you know, like your kid did this today at class. If you haven't pre-established that relationship, uh, it's going to be really hard for families. And so, like, you know, again, like, I'm not giving you a consigned answer, but, like, there is some, I think, like, the three main things that I experience um, when working with youth in outdoor spaces is, like, safety concerns. They're not having a relationship with the people who is in charge, uh, per se, of the trip. And then just, like, kind of not knowing the exact activities. You know, again, when I send a flyer that says, let's visit the Santa Ana River, uh, you know, parents don't even know that the Santa Ana River is have so much invaded species and there is like it's not even deep in the places that you can access them because it's contaminated, you know, it's not even safe getting into the water. So all we're gonna do is just go and look into the pollution. Like, you know, we're not gonna let the kids go inside. Um, but it's like all these things that happen in a parent's mind and if kind of your communication is not clear and concise, then they are just gonna say no. Um, so it is time consuming. I have had to spend like, you know, several minutes with a parent saying like, you know, I really want Nathan to go to this field trip and it's important because it covered this content of the science class. And really all we're going to do is like, you know, to collect water samples. But really all we're going to do is to watch him do invasive species. Um, and so just, just having that uh, conversation sometimes parents say like yes it's okay uh, for my kid to go and sometimes they have to say like no you know I think they are too young or sometimes have parents tell me like yeah I will let her know but if the brother goes with her and so I think other things that I didn't mention on those principles is really finding that flexibility and adapting the program to whatever the community is telling you to do um, I have tried both Things, programs where only the youth is involved and programs where the youth and families is involved. Um, when I'm working with Latino audiences, the family approach generally works better. Uh, it just increases participation, uh, it decreases anxiety on all participants. And so when I have funding available to include the full family, that's always my, um, my strategy to go around it. At the top of this episode, I mentioned that a new resource related to Claudia's community work has been published. This resource is a new publication, a series really, of briefs for practitioners about Latinx youth development. These practitioner briefs have been published by the University of California Agriculture and Natural Resources Division. The first brief provides an overview of guiding principles for engaging Latinx youth. The second practitioner's brief addresses the philosophy of organizations who are serving Latinx youth effectively. In this brief, you'll learn about navigating discrimination, fostering cultural and ethnic identity, and equitable access to programs. The third practitioner's brief is about youth engagement. Family engagement is the focus of the fourth brief, and building relationships in Latinx communities is the focus of the fifth and last brief in the series. You'll find a link to this series in the show notes of this episode at talatera.com. All are available for free, and I encourage you to add this new resource to your teaching toolkit. Thank you for joining us today. See you next time.
Aliterra is a podcast for and about independent educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Tanya Marion.